Chapter Fourteen, Part Five of Etiquette. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clarica. Etiquette in Society, in Business, in Politics, and at Home by Emily Post. Chapter Fourteen, Part Five: Formal Dinners. Etiquette of Gloves and Napkin. Ladies always wear gloves to formal dinners, and take them off at table. Entirely off. It is hideous to leave them on the arm, merely turning back the hands. Both gloves and fan are supposed to be laid across the lap, and one is supposed to lay the napkin folded once in half across the lap, too, on top of the gloves and fan, and all three are supposed to stay in place on a slippery satin skirt on a little lap that more often than not slants downward. It is all very well for etiquette to say, they stay there, but every woman knows they don't, and this is quite a nice question. If you obey etiquette and lay the napkin on top of the fan and gloves loosely across your satin-covered knees, it will depend merely on the heaviness and position of the fan's handle, whether the avalanche starts right, left, or forward onto the floor. There is just one way to keep these four articles, including the lap as one, from disintegrating, which is to put the napkin cornerwise across your knees, and tuck the two side corners under like a lap robe, with the gloves and fan tied in place as it were. This ought not to be put in a book of etiquette, which should say you must do nothing of the kind, but it is either do that or have the gentleman next to you groping under the table at the end of the meal, and it is impossible to imagine that etiquette should wish to conserve the picture of gentlemen on all fours as the concluding ceremonial at dinners. THE TURNING OF THE TABLE the turning of the table is accomplished by the hostess, who merely turns from the gentleman, on her left probably, with whom she has been talking through the soup and the fish course, to the one on her right. As she turns, the lady to whom the right gentleman has been talking turns to the gentleman farther on, and in a moment everyone at table is talking to a new neighbor. Sometimes a single couple who have become very much engrossed refuse to change partners, and the whole table is blocked, leaving one lady and one gentleman on either side of the block, staring alone at their plates. At this point the hostess has to come to the rescue by attracting the blocking lady's attention and saying, "'Sally, you cannot talk to Professor Bug any longer. Mr. Smith has been trying his best to attract your attention.' Sally, being in this way brought awake, is obliged to pay attention to Mr. Smith, and Professor Bug, little as he may feel inclined, must turn his attention to the other side. To persist in carrying on their own conversation at the expense of others would be inexcusably rude, not only to their hostess, but to everyone present. At a dinner not long ago, Mr. Kindheart, sitting next to Mrs. Wellborn, and left to himself because of the assiduity of the lady's farther partner, slid his own name-card across and in front of her, to bring her attention to the fact that it was his turn. Enemies must bury hatchets. One inexorable rule of etiquette is that you must talk to your next-door neighbor at dinner-table. You must. That is all there is about it. Even if you are placed next to someone with whom you have had a bitter quarrel, consideration for your hostess, who would be distressed if she knew you had been put in a disagreeable place, and further consideration for the rest of the table, which is otherwise blocked, exacts that you give no outward sign of your repugnance, and that you make a pretense, at least for a little while, of talking together. At dinner once, Mrs. Toplofty, finding herself next to a man she quite openly despised, said to him with apparent placidity, 
I shall not talk to you, because I don't care to, but for the sake of my hostess I shall say my multiplication tables. Twice one are two, twice two are four. And she continued on through the tables, making him alternate them with her. As soon as she politely could, she turned again to another companion. Manners at Table it used to be an offence, and it is still considered impolite, to refuse dishes at the table, because your refusal implies that you do not like what is offered to you. If this is true, you should be doubly careful to take at least a little on your plate, and make a pretense of eating some of it, since to refuse course after course cannot fail to distress your hostess. If you are on a diet, and accepted the invitation with that stipulation, your not eating is excusable. But even then, to sit with an empty plate in front of you, throughout a meal, makes you a seemingly reproachful table companion for those of good appetite sitting next to you. Attacking a Complicated Dish When a dinner has been prepared by a chef who prides himself on being a decorative artist, the guest of honor and whoever else may be the first to be served have quite a problem to know which part of an intricate structure is to be eaten and which part is scenic effect. The main portion is generally clear enough. The uncertainty is whether the flowers are eaten vegetables, and whether the things that look like ducks are potatoes or trimming. If there are six or more, the chances are they are edible, and that one or two of a kind are embellishments only. Rings around food are nearly always to be eaten. Platforms under food seldom, if ever, are. Anything that looks like pastry is to be eaten, and anything divided into separate units should be taken onto your plate complete. You should not try to cut a section from anything that has already been divided into portions in the kitchen. Aspects and desserts are, it must be said, occasionally Chinese puzzles, but if you do help yourself to part of the decoration, no great harm is done. Dishes are never passed from hand to hand at dinner, not even at the smallest and most informal one. Sometimes people pass salted nuts to each other, or an extra sweet from a dish nearby, but not circling the table. Leaving the Table at the end of dinner, when the last dish of chocolates has been passed, and the hostess sees that no one is any longer eating, she looks across the table, and, catching the eye of one of the ladies, slowly stands up. The one who happens to be observing also stands up, and in a moment everyone is standing. The gentlemen offer their arms to their partners and conduct them back to the drawing-room or the library, or wherever they are to sit during the rest of the evening. Each gentleman then slightly bows, takes leave of his partner, and adjourns with the other gentleman to the smoking-room, where after-dinner coffee, liqueurs, cigars, and cigarettes are passed, and they all sit where they like and with whom they like, and talk. It is perfectly correct for a gentleman to talk to any other who happens to be sitting near him, whether he knows him or not. The host on occasions, but it is rarely necessary, starts the conversation if most of the guests are inclined to keep silent, by drawing this one or that into discussion of a general topic that every one is likely to take part in. At the end of twenty minutes or so, he must take the opportunity of the first lull in the conversation to suggest that they join the ladies in the drawing-room. In a house where there is no smoking-room, the gentlemen do not conduct the ladies to the drawing-room, but stay where they are, the ladies leaving alone, and have their coffee, cigars, liqueurs, and conversation sitting around the table. In the drawing-room, meanwhile, the ladies are having coffee, cigarettes, and liqueurs passed to them. There is not a modern New York City hostess, scarcely even an old-fashioned one, who does not have cigarettes passed after dinner. At a dinner of ten or twelve, the five or six ladies are apt to sit in one group, or possibly two sit by themselves, and three or four together, but at a very large dinner they inevitably fall into groups of four or five or so each. 
"'In any case, the hostess must see that no one is left to sit alone. "'If one of her guests is a stranger to the others, "'the hostess draws a chair near one of the groups, "'and offering it to her single guest, sits beside her. "'After a while, when this particular guest "'has at least joined the outskirts of the conversation of the group, "'the hostess leaves her and joins another group, "'where perhaps she sits beside someone else "'who has been somewhat left out.' when there is no one who needs any especial attention the hostess nevertheless sits for a time with each of the different groups in order to spend at least part of the evening with all of her guests when the gentlemen return to the drawing-room when the gentlemen return to the drawing-room if there is a particular lady that one of them wants to talk to he naturally goes directly to where she is and sits down beside her if however she is securely wedged in between two other ladies he must ask her to join him elsewhere. Supposing Mr. Jones, for instance, wants to talk to Mrs. Bobo Gilding, who is sitting between Mrs. Stranger and Mrs. Stiffly. Mr. Jones saunters up to Mrs. Gilding. He must not look too eager, or seem too directly to prefer her to the two who are flanking her position, so he says rather casually, Will you come and talk to me? whereupon she leaves her sandwich position and goes over to another part of the room and sits down where there is a vacant seat beside her usually however the ladies on the ends being accessible are more apt to be joined by the first gentleman entering than is the one in the centre whom it is impossible to reach etiquette has always decreed that gentlemen should not continue to talk together after leaving the smoking-room as it is not courteous to those of the ladies who are necessarily left without partners at informal dinners and even at many formal ones bridge tables are set up in an adjoining room if not in the drawing-room those few who do not play bridge spend a half hour or less in conversation and then go home unless there is some special diversion music or other entertainment after dinner very large dinners of fifty or over are almost invariably followed by some sort of entertainment either the dinner is given before a ball or a musicale or amateur theatricals or professionals are brought in to dance or sing in this day when conversation is not so much a lost as a wilfully abandoned art people in numbers cannot be left to spend an evening on nothing but conversation grouped together by the hundred and with bridge tables absent the modern fashionables in america and in england too are as helpless as children at a party without something for them to do listen to or look at very big dinners a dinner of sixty for instance is always served at separate tables a centre one of twenty people and four corner tables of ten each or if less a centre table of twelve and four smaller tables of eight a dinner of thirty-six or less is seated at a single table but whether there are eighteen eighty or one or two hundred the setting of each individual table and the service is precisely the same each one is sent with a centerpiece, candles, compotures, and evenly spaced plates, with the addition of a number by which to identify it, or else each table is decorated with different colored flowers, pink, yellow, orchid, white. Whatever the manner of identification, the number or the color is written in the corner of the ladies' name cards that go in the envelopes handed to each gentleman arriving at the door, pink, yellow, orchid, white, or center table. In arranging for the service of dinner, the butler details three footmen, usually, to each table of ten, and six footmen to the center table of twenty. There are several houses, palaces really, in New York that have dining-rooms big enough to seat a hundred or more easily. 
but sixty is a very big dinner, and even thirty does not go well without an entertainment following it. Otherwise, the details are the same in every particular, as well as in table-setting. The hostess receives at the door, guests stand until dinner is announced, the host leads the way with the guest of honor. The hostess goes to table last. The host and hostess always sit at the big center table, and the others at that table are invariably the oldest present. No one resents being grouped according to age, but many do resent a segregation of ultra-fashionables. You must never put all the prominent ones at one table, unless you want forever to lose the acquaintance of those at every other. After dinner, the gentlemen go to the smoking-room, and the ladies sit in the ballroom, where, if there is to be a theatrical performance, the stage is probably arranged. The gentlemen return, the guests take their places, and the performance begins. After the performance, the leave-taking is the same as at all dinners or parties. Taking leave that the guest of honor must be first to take leave was, in former times, so fixed a rule that everyone used to sit on and on, no matter how late it became, waiting for her whose duty it was to go. More often than not, the guest of honor was an absent-minded old lady, or celebrity, who very likely was vaguely saying to herself, "'Oh, my! Are these people never going home?' until, by and by, it dawned upon her that the obligation was her own." But today, although it is still the obligation of the guest who sat on the host's right to make the move to go, it is not considered ill-mannered, if the hour is growing late, for another lady to rise first. In fact, unless the guest of honor is one really, meaning a stranger or an elderly lady of distinction, there is no actual precedence in being the first to go. If the hour is very early when the first lady rises, the hostess, who always rises too, very likely says, I hope you are not thinking of going. The guest answers, We don't want to in the least, but Dick has to be at the office so early. Or, I'm sorry, but I must. Thank you so much for asking us. Usually, however, each one merely says, Good night. Thank you so much. The hostess answers, I am so glad you could come. And then she presses a bell, not one that any guest can hear, for the servants to be in the dressing-rooms and hall. When one guest leaves, they all leave, except those at the bridge-tables. They all say, Good-night, to whomever they were talking with, and shake hands, and then going up to their hostess, they shake hands and say, Thank you for asking us, or Thank you so much. Thank you so much, good-night, is the usual expression. And the hostess answers, It was so nice to see you again, or I'm glad you could come but most usually of all she says merely good-night, and suggests friendliness by the tone in which she says it, an accent slightly more on the good, perhaps, than on the night. In the dressing-room or in the hall, the maid is waiting to help the ladies on with their wraps, and the butler is at the door. When Mr. and Mrs. Jones are ready to leave, he goes out on the front steps and calls Mr. Jones's car. The Jones's chauffeur answers, Here, the butler says either to Mr. or Mrs. Jones, Your car is at the door, and they go out. The bridge people leave as they finish their games, sometimes as a table at a time, or most likely two together. Husbands and wives are never, if it can be avoided, put at the same table. Young people, in saying good night, say, Good night, it has been too wonderful, or Good night, and thank you so much, 
and the hostess smiles and says, So glad you could come, or just good night. The Little Dinner The Little Dinner is thought by most people to be the very pleasantest social function there is. It is always informal, of course, and intimate conversation is possible, since strangers are seldom, or at least very carefully, included. For younger people, or others who do not find great satisfaction in conversation, the dinner of eight, and two tables of bridge afterwards, has no rival in popularity. The formal dinner is liked by most people now and then, and for those who don't especially like it, it is at least salutary as a spine-stiffening exercise. But for night after night, season after season, the little dinner is to social activity what the roast course is to the meal. The service of a little dinner is the same as that of a big one. As has been said, proper service in properly run houses is never relaxed, whether dinner is for eighteen or for two alone. The table appointments are equally fine and beautiful, though possibly not quite so rare. Really priceless old glass and china can't be replaced because duplicates do not exist, and to use it three times a day would be to court destruction. Replicas, however, are scarcely less beautiful and can be replaced if chipped. The silver is identical. The food is equally well prepared, though a course or two is eliminated. The service is precisely the same. The clothes that fashionable people wear every evening they are home alone are, if not the same, at least as beautiful of their kind. Young Gilding's lounge suit is quite as handsome as his dinner clothes, and he tubs and shaves and changes his linen when he puts it on. His wife wears a tea-gown, which is classified as a negligee rather in irony, since it is apt to be more elaborate and gorgeous, to say nothing of dignified, than half the garments that masquerade these days as evening dresses. They wear these informal clothes only if very intimate friends are coming to dinner alone. Alone may include as many as eight, but never includes a stranger. Otherwise, at informal dinners, the host wears a dinner coat and the hostess a simple evening dress, or perhaps an elaborate one that has been seen by everyone, and which goes on at little dinners for the sake of getting some wear out of it. She never, however, receives formally standing, though she rises when a guest comes into the room, shakes hands, and sits down again. When dinner is announced, gentlemen do not offer their arms to the ladies. The hostess and the other ladies go into the dining-room together, not in a procession, but just as they happen to come. If one of them is much older than the others, the younger ones wait for her to go ahead of them, or one who is much younger goes last. The men stroll in the rear. The hostess, on reaching the dining-room, goes to her own place where she stands and tells everyone where he or she is to sit. Mary, will you sit next to Jim, and Lucy on his other side, Kate over there, Bobo next to me, etc. Carving on the Table Carving is sometimes seen at home dinner-tables. A certain type of man always likes to carve, and such a one does. But in forty-nine houses out of fifty, in New York at least, the carving is done by the cook in the kitchen. A roast, while it is still in the roasting-pan, and close to the range at that, so that nothing can possibly get cooled off in the carving. After which the pieces are carefully put together again, and transferred to an intensely hot platter. This method has two advantages over table carving, quicker service and hotter food. Unless a change takes place in the present fashion, none except cooks will know anything about carving, which was once considered an art necessary to every gentleman. 
the boast of the high-born southerner that he could carve a canvas back holding it on his fork will be as unknown as the driving of a four in hand old-fashioned butlers sometimes carve in the pantry but in the most modern service all carving is done by the cook cold meats are in the english service put whole on the sideboard and the family and guests cut off whatever they choose themselves in america cold meat is more often sliced and laid on a platter garnished with finely chopped meat jelly and watercress or parsley the stag or bachelor dinner a man's dinner is sometimes called a stag or a bachelor dinner and as its name implies is a dinner given by a man for men only a man's dinner is usually given to celebrate an occasion of welcome or farewell the best-known bachelor dinner is the one given by the groom just before his wedding other dinners are more apt to be given by one man or a group of men in honor of a noted citizen who has returned from a long absence or who is about to embark on an expedition or a foreign mission or a young man may give a dinner in honor of a friend's twenty-first birthday or an older man may give a dinner merely because he has a quantity of game which he has shot and wants to share with his especial friends nearly always a man's dinner is given at the host's club or his bachelor quarters or in a private room in a hotel but if a man chooses to give a stag dinner in his own house his wife or his mother should not appear for a wife to come downstairs and receive the guests for him cannot be too strongly condemned as out of place such a maneuver on her part instead of impressing his guests with her own grace and beauty is far more likely to make them think what a poor worm her husband must be allowing himself to be henpecked and for a mother to appear at a son's dinner is if anything worse an essential piece of advice to every woman is no matter how much you may want to say how do you do to your husband's or your son's friends don't End of chapter fourteen